Welcome to Ausfilm Creatives, a podcast about Australian creatives working behind the camera. My name is Peter Sylvester and I'm your host. Welcome to this episode of Ausfilm Creatives. Today I have Jacinta Long, who's an art director and a production designer working in Australia mostly. And she has some amazing credits like The Matrix, Alien Covenant, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales, and Mad Max Fury Road. So yeah, it'd be really wonderful to talk to her and find out her experience as a art director and production designer. Welcome to the show, Jacinta. First thing I'd love to always find out about my guests is uh, how they got into filmmaking or, in your case, production design. All right. Well, thanks, Peter, for uh, creating these series and finding out more about people in the industry. I appreciate your time. I uh, got into the industry by a series of steps, which started when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager, my sisters and I were stage performers. We played musical instruments and I thought that I would be an actor and then when it came to leaving high school, uh, my parents were more encouraging of tertiary education and uh, I took that on board as well and I thought, oh, maybe architecture would be a good field of study because when I was, if I flash back to my childhood, I was in a stage performance called The King and I. And the set designer was an architect and she had studied at the Brisbane University. And I thought, oh, okay, if I study architecture, I can have that piece of paper and also keep a foot in theatre so I can keep auditioning and that sort of thing. Uh, But then towards the end of the architecture course, I found out more about film and I did my thesis my final year thesis on set design for film and television Uh, I interviewed uh, production designers in Australia and the US and when I graduated I sent my CV to anyone and everyone who would listen (laughs) and uh, one landed at the then Warner Roadshow Studios on the Gold Coast And I'd had seven years of drafting experience and architecture, working in an architectural firm. So I was uh, hired on a movie of the week and uh, that was my my foot in. Oh, wow. As far as picking architecture, was there something that attracted you to specifically that that work? Gosh, I think we're, we're drawn to certain... We as humans are drawn to certain things, you know, things that catch our eye. And drawings caught my eye. Uh, that and theatre set design and television set design. And I thought, well, even um, in the studying for the thesis, the what I found was that in Roman and Greek times, the theatre set designers were architects because most of the backdrops were classical architectural um, 
facades or streetscapes or interiors. So I think drawing and having a, a, an attraction to shapes and forms and drawings led me there as well. For me, like I remember uh, when I was young, I'd, I'd seen films and it was trying to figure out, being a little kid, you just go, oh, I want to know how to be part of that world. So it's sort of that's that was sort of my initial instinct to in, into film, and um, yeah, so it's interesting how we are pre kind of not predetermined or you know predispositioned to to do that work. Um, yeah, yeah, snap. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so when you started doing your early works, what uh, what kicked you off to to really be sought after as a art director and then obviously you've moved into production design as well. Gosh, I don't know about sought after. <laughs> I do have to chase work. But um, yeah. I think it it really started at drafting skills and being able to draw sets because when you draft up sets or environments, so plans of a location or elevations of buildings, Everyone gets to see them, like production, want to see what they're creating. Construction, need to quote on it. So they need to know how many square metres of flattage they're building. Uh, of course, the director needs to see what spaces he or she can put the performers in. Uh, lighting, uh, cinematographers uh, need to work out where to put the camera and where to put their lights. So drafting was a very strong foundation for me to to get in and build on. I noticed on your website that you actually are quite involved hands-on with 3D design using CAD program or, or a 3D program. Yes, that's right. I, I first came across 3D CAD in, would have been 1989. Wow. <laughs> Maybe 1988. Uh you could set up 3D um, spaces in AutoCAD and they built from there then and I also use 3D Studio Max which has better cameras and better lighting, I suppose. Uh, but by being able to visualise a set and also work out what camera and what lens you might use, you can work out the composition of frames and also find out how much set you really need to build because if you don't point the camera in that direction, you don't have to build that part of the set. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I also saw that uh, you had actually got designs for uh, Mad Max Fury Road. Now, was this designs your own designs or it, you, they were given to you and then you had to 3D model them? I, on Mad Max Fury Road, uh, I did drawings for... Uh, the some of the vehicles and some of the Citadel sets. Our production designer was Colin Gibson. He informed me, he and the supervising art director, Charlie Revai, informed me of Citadel sets. We also had the principal vehicles designer, Peter Pound. So he and Colin instructed me on... Uh, the vehicles that uh, I drew up. But also informing me was uh, the workshop next door where we had panel beaters and um, mechanics and steel workers. 
and special effects. So what we were doing was getting these vehicles and I could measure them up as we went. Like we'd start off with a bare chassis and then we could visit them every day and see them progressing and make changes uh, to suit everyone's requirements. So, yeah, Mad Max was a great experience drawing those vehicles. You know, they actually had to function safely and look cool at the same time. Mm. So that, I guess that role you probably wouldn't normally do as, a, as an art director, I assume. Uh, for vehicles like that, it, it, I haven't done anything like that before. Wow. You know, for so many vehicles that looked so post-apocalyptic, yeah. it was a very, it was a, an innovative and creative project. Funny enough, I remember back then I bumped into one of the guys that they built the um, the roll cages and everything for him. So small world. That leads me to ask about working on these really large Hollywood productions that you've worked on as art director. So you know, namely like Alien Covenant or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. We'll just call it Pirates from now on. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I guess as an art director on that on those large films how much input do you have or you just become pretty much a manager of numbers uh, we all have our um, inputs for various inputs to these productions generally the production designer is is the uh, what and the art directors are the how so, and then there are different types of art directors. There are ones who are purely management, like budgets, scheduling, crewing. And there are also creative, you know, drawing um, art directors. And there are, then there are also those who do both. And the input that I had personally was some drawing and some following up of how we were going to do it. So generally we, even though they're vastly different productions, the role is to go through uh, drawings and numbers, chat with construction and scenics about how they're going to achieve it. And we go through lots of R and D as well. Uh, we get samples done so we can look at them, look at colours and textures and how they all fit in with the set and then how that fits in with the whole production. So the input is always very, there's a lot of variety, which is good. And yeah, in general, our job is to make the work easier for the, the production designer. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Obviously, you want to help your teammates as much as possible in all films. Um, That's it. It's, it's the job. On a large project like that, what are some of the takeaways you've had? As an art director, I guess you would have been, Mad Max probably was your first biggest film maybe, as credited as that, or yes. I'd say. But as far as uh, some of the takeaways you've had from those working on those large projects, what, what did you do to excel your own skills and your, you know, maybe artistic endeavours and things like that? What are some of the things you would have taken away? Oh, gosh, we take away, well, I, I take away a lot from every production because you're always learning. You're learning about the design itself and the story. And you're also learning about how 
different crew members work. Uh, especially when I'm when I'm art directing for a production designer, I do my best to adapt to how they work. They all design, but they do work differently, and that might be personalities or how they like to communicate or how they draw or how they process information. I suppose specifically, um, some of the things I've learned, specifically from Mad Max, what I learned was a lot about cars and vehicles and how, oh, how much the mechanics and the panel beaters and the steel workers and special effects how they how they worked uh, to get these machines designed and built and functioning. I learned a lot from uh, the designer Colin Gibson about detailing and uh, putting these motifs through throughout the film, and how much how much texture and how much texture and detail to put into the vehicles. So it's interesting that I was just going to say, I mean, if you jump between Mad Max and, let's say, Alien Covenant, obviously there was vehicles in that and science fiction. So I guess you would have you utilised some of those skills. That yes, that's right. Yes, you, um, you apply similar skills to each. And I suppose when you look at those three different films, you know, the genres are so vastly different, which makes the job very interesting. On Pirates, I was looking at the ships, and a lot of the ships had already been established in the previous films, uh, so it was a matter of bringing those back, but also changing their decks around, like the Black Pearl ship. We reused that deck to create the Queen Anne's Revenge deck. So we used the same gimbal there. So you learn a lot about repurposing uh, elements, large or small, for economic and space reasons and environmental reasons, I suppose, time reasons, all those reasons. Uh, and then Alien Covenant, it's a genre of its own. The spacecraft there were... I really love that. <laughs> I love I love spaceships, <laughs> um, and well, within the Covenant ship itself, you know there were parts of the ship, like the bridge was one set on a gimbal on stage seven, and the terraforming bay, which had all those vehicles in it, that was also on stage seven. Uh, we also had many corridors within that ship, so. It had to have um, a, a same, a similar language, as if, and, and the hypersleep as well. Sorry, the hypersleep set was another set within that whole Covenant ship. Mm. Uh, so it was very interesting to tie them all in, as if they were the same ship, but also each area served its different purpose for the ship. Yeah, and with Alien Covenant, do you, I'm assuming also the interior sets of the of the the, the engineer's planet i think it was uh mm -hmm. that you know where it looked very gothic almost so you've kind of switched up completely where you know that david the android started mm -hmm. training himself and all that stuff and and creating the alien itself i guess and that turned completely gothic so it was 
yeah, very, very interesting film because of that. Like, the, there was a mix of science fiction and gothic horror. Yes, and I think you raise a very interesting point there too, now that I think of it too. Um, we had art directors, uh, we had four art directors on that one, plus our supervising art director, Ian Gracie, but each art director had sort of a, a group or a set to, to manage. So um, Damien Drew was the art director on uh, the Engineers Planet. So all those sets that you mentioned, they had a particular look. And uh, I was um, art directing the Covenant ship. And then uh, we had um, art director Charlie Rabai looking after screen graphics and um, liaising with set deck. So all these, there's just so much work to do that you have to divide it up into, it works to, to divide the work amongst different art directors. Mm, definitely to keep, yeah, it's almost like similar style, but I guess the glue is, you know, the actors and the director and that, that glues it all together to make sure it's still in the same style, but but at least uh, you have real nice variations in, in, in the theme, I guess. Sorry, I'll also mention art director Michelle McGay on Alien Covenant. She was also looking after other sets, including the Terraforming Bay, um, Hypersleep. So, yeah, it's allocating art directors to those different areas. Don't, don't want to go too deep into Alien Covenant, but I, I loved it. Like, it looked amazing. And I, I was interested in working with the cinematographer as far as building your sets with the lighting. Like, you did you do a lot of that to make sure that it, it's as much built into the set? We certainly liaise uh, with the cinematographer and gaffer on how to light the sets. Uh, if we're talking about specifically the Alien Covenant bridge, a lot of the lighting there was part of the ship, so it was built into the structure and we had that hologram table in the middle as well. So lighting, crack lighting becomes part of the, the architecture and part, it's built into the set. Then the terraforming bay, we actually used the sound stage itself as the walls of the terraforming bay. So besides the lighting on the decks and that eye level, if you like, a lot of them were um, out of shot, like above above the set. Mm. And so we leave enough room up the top and make sure we don't have too much stuff in the way to, to, that blocks the lighting. Yeah. I wanted to, yeah, do this kind of... I'm interested to see what your experience was working on a large project like Mad Max versus uh, Hollywood. Was there much difference in the way that the crews operated um, That's between Mad Max and, say, yeah, Pirates? Between the US-based or Oz uh, uh, films, those US-based ones, it's usually the head of the department who may not be Australian. Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, for, for several reasons, but most of the crew are, we see each other. Uh, we loop in and out of each other's lives. We're in certain circles and sometimes we meet up and then work with each other for a few years and then we won't see each other for another three years or so. And then, you know, um, 
most of the crew are, are people we know uh, are Australians. As your earlier point about learning to work with different crews, I think I guess that would just help a lot more by you having some knowledge or actually knowing the people that you work with versus yes. random people that you might have respectively read about, or, you know, films that that person might have done but you have no clue about them. Yes, it's quite often more about the, the, the crew and uh, working with different people, which is, a, is, is part of the, the learning process as well as the enjoyment of working on films in general. And we'll do another little comparison about actually working on smaller projects versus larger projects that you've worked on. What are some of the pros and cons? Because, I mean, obviously both of them would have a few issues from one respect to another, but what was sort of your experience between working, you know, like we'll talk about 2067, which is obviously a very small budget project versus, you know, the large ones that you've worked on? Oh, gosh, well, on smaller projects generally, when compared with these larger uh, projects, the downside, if you like, on these smaller projects projects is the budget. Mm. It's the first thing that springs to mind because... We have these grand visions, we have concept illustrations and we know what we want and we have expectations and then quite often they don't match mm. the, the budget that's been allocated. Uh, but, you know, we do work around it. We find other ways of being creative and to achieve something that's the best that we, we, we can achieve on that budget. Uh, but then if, if we looked at pros of smaller projects, I think they can sometimes be more personal because you, as a production designer on smaller projects, I'm able to get a hand in on at every part of the art department. So art department, set deck, props, graphics, locations. So you get to work with more of the entire art department and film on those small projects, whereas on those larger projects there's so much to to get done that I that I, I'm not so involved with props or so involved with set deck. They're their own departments who have got so much to do. We definitely catch up with each other but I may not have so much of a say in those things because they're they're being looked after by those department heads. Mm, in a way, sounds like it. You kind of get a little bit more ownership on on the smaller projects. Yes, that that's that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's a it's a trade off, and and both scenarios are good to experience. I think, um, and oh, you know, for the for the differences that they present. Yeah, definitely. I, I look forward to the day to get to work on a large project. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I can't speak from that perspective yet. Um, oh, all right. Well, Ben Hall, that, that, that sounded pretty pretty large. That sounded um, – Ben Hall sounds like uh, – yeah, I mean, it was. That's yeah. you were a GP on that. And yeah, I mean, you, you would say it, I think it comes off as a fairly, fairly um, epic project, but it was really just uh, an indie project that, that happens to be also a period piece and, you know, with action in it. So, you know, we, we yeah, we 
really stretched ourselves to make that film. Um, so, you know, I didn't, you know, like like I said, you ha- I get a lot more ownership in the way I got to shoot it and things because, you know, I had to have that, imp- uh, you know, a lot more input into it. But definitely was a it's a, it was a small project from the stance of a budget. <laughs> Right. So we'll move on to your 2067, a recent production that you were production designer, and I would love to find out how you got onto that project. Uh, on 2067, uh, the way I, I got, got attached to the project was I was reading on the internet how uh, the director, Seth Larney, had gone through a read-through of his script, and I'd met... Seth on the Star Wars films and then again on Superman Returns. Uh, Superman Returns was 2005. So uh, after I found that out on the internet, I made contact with him and uh, Lisa Shaughnessy, uh, the producer, and I put my hand up and said, um, if you need a production designer, um, mm. give us a hoy. So we had a, a meeting and I'd put together some reference about how uh, I saw the film after they sent me the script and uh, got, got signed on tentatively. And then it took another couple of years uh, before it was ready to fly and we had another meeting and I said, yeah, I'm still up for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how I... I uh, was attached to the film. Excellent. And what was the initial brief from Seth and what was the design approach that, that they wanted to make in the film? I, I read the script and also they had put a concept package together with Gareth Davies, who had designed their previous film as well. So I had that uh, information and then I built on it more um, having the script and knowing a bit more about the other elements of design such as props and graphics. So the film itself is a somewhat a post-apocalyptic kind of scenario? Right. 2067 is a story uh, which is set less than 50 years from now. So it's brought, sci-fi is a very interesting word to use. It's probably, you could probably loosely call it sci-fi, but it's almost like future period. It's not that far away. Mm. And the story is that we as humans have been so irresponsible with our planet. Uh, We've used all the trees up. Hmm. And so there's no oxygen and we we had to imagine a world where we were in that situation. So, you know, there was so much research we could do. Uh, I, I was looking at science magazines and looking at what happens if the world does run out of oxygen mm-hmm. and what we do. And I, it's hard to talk about it without giving too much away. Uh, but by... Uh, having those those situations in our minds, we were um, able to design worlds and 
parts of the city which reflected this um, situation. Being, I'm assuming, a low budget, you, you really had to stretch on how you would design, especially an exterior. The interiors, I guess that's where you could have really played with. What was the interior designs, was that futuristic or was it still quite contemporary and then just add a few little things that might make it look a little bit like, even though it's yeah. it's now decrepit kind of looking because yeah. of the, 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 the style, but... Um, and the story, but yeah, what were some of the things you had to try and make work because of the, the low budget? Yeah, right. So design-wise, we had some interiors and we had diverse interiors because there were the, the, the corporate interiors and then there was a domestic interior and it was a fine balance, I felt, that we had to make it look sort of futuristic and contemporary so futuristic as in what were some of the building methods they would have used at that time and also then you know dialing it to something that was recognizable you know mm. something that wasn't outlandish working with the budget uh it was being able to not have certain finishes and accept or, or not being a certain size or, or of the set and being able to yeah manage expectations mm. as well um, I think that in general having budget parameters is a good thing because if you don't have those in place you know that's one less piece of criteria that you have to work with and you know you could go crazy and mm. design something outlandish or too big and I think I think we should look at <laughs> budget constraints as being our friends yeah uh, I mean limitations you know they always say artists that have had the limitations usually they excel at, at producing quite interesting works because of whatever reason whatever their limitations may be um, you know I remember this story this Russian filmmaker and he didn't have a camera but he had you know film stock so he just scratch, scratched animation into the emulsion, you know. And oh. the, you know, like, and but the work is beautiful. You know, I got to see the work, and I was like, wow. Like, so I think that's that's a big part of it. It's really cool. We shot in Adelaide, and we had an amazing local crew, and so they knew where to obtain things. And mm. uh, I had a an art director, Gareth Wilkes, uh, who was good on. The finances as well, and he he and all the other locals were very well connected for other people as well as resources. So we uh, relied a lot on uh, knowing people and what people might be able to donate, like a canvas backdrop from a theatre, a local mm. theatre, or some other set pieces. That was one of the main ways we got around the budget limitations and I think it's a good thing too because of um, you know the environment <laughs> we don't want to necessarily create something new if we can find something that still looks the part and is uh, appropriate for the scenery mm. uh, yeah you've got to find those pluses in in those limitations you know you look at some of the old science fiction type films or especially post-apocalyptic it's just adding a few little touches that are you know that looks contemporary but there is a few things you go oh, okay i can see why it's now you know set in a different time 
Um, so that's that's always a, you know a cheap way to get away with. And I guess for you with with the the budget constraints, you had to be I guess very specific on what was going to be in front of the camera and only build that. I assume that's that's right. And look, Seth Lani, our director, and Earl Dresner, our DP, we were all in the same boat mm. on that, uh, and we all understood that, that it's it's not pirates and it's not Alien Covenant. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, we were definitely all on the same page with, you know, what was achievable and where to put the, the value into it, where to put the money for best production value. And it was great collaborating with Seth and Earl on the look and all those constraints. And, you know, luckily we were able to have a few laughs about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah, have to. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So with the, from your design approach, was there a sort of a palette that you kind of went with? Yes, definitely. Uh, there was a, a certain architectural language for all of the different worlds that we had and there was also a colour palette um, for it as well, which uh, I, I devised and ran through Seth and Earl so that we could use those colour and language palettes to define those different environments to get us from one world to another with colour. Um, what it offered us was uh, an emotion or a tone or a feeling. So we, we opened the film in um, a fairly depressing world where we've, we don't have any oxygen so if you don't have a mask with oxygen, you will die. Mm. Uh, and then our key character, played by Cody Smith McPhee, he has to find a way to. Well, his wife is ill, so he has a lack of oxygen, and he has to find a way to save her life as well as the whole planet, pretty well much. Within that opening scene too, we have the corporate world and we have the workers. And if you look at that sort of hierarchy as well, we have the corporate workers in a skyscraper and the workers underground in the in the mines and the tunnels. So colour is used to um, communicate those two different worlds within our world. Mm. So would you say it's sort of sort of you would have started with a more of a paler palette, um, like very desaturated, or what, what was sort of the approach there, colour tones, or did you use greens, or what kind of thing did you go with? In this world, for example, in our world 50 years from now, whether you be um, in the corporate world or if you are a mine worker, underground we had no reference to green because Uh we've ruined the planet of trees there's no timber Uh, we uh, that was another interesting thing not only color palette but also materials there was no timber because we burned it all we used it all so we had a lot of hard surfaces 
um, nothing organic. It was very synthetic. It was all artificial because that's what we humans have done. We've created metal. We've created plastics, um, rubber, all these synthetic materials to create our, our world. Ah, cool. Without giving any more uh, of the story away, we'll um, talk about a little bit about working with head of departments and the director on a budget like this. Are you, is, is there a lot of communication going on because of, you know, you really have to work together to make, make as much as you can with a budget that you had? Uh, yes. Whether or not we had a budget restraint, I think that working with uh, Seth and Earl we would have still communicated um, as much as we did. So we had a bit of a luxury of pre-production in Sydney. We get together almost daily and we could chat about just about anything and everything when we're in the same room. So we could mm. talk about anything and everything at the time. Um, and I was modelling some of the sets and I had reference material that I could Show, show them at any time and back in, back going back to these CAD models, we could walk through them and see how tall walls were or how Earl wanted to light it or where Seth wanted to put the cameras and compose the shots. So that was really good. And actually Seth, is, Seth uses the same software as I do. He uses 3DS Max and oh, yeah. he uses it better. <laughs> than I do. Um, but he's also very visual effects um, uh, uh, savvy. So, yeah, communicating with both of them was very important and very achievable too because we talked often at the beginning anyway. We were able to talk about things very fundamentally before we went to Adelaide. It was a good collaboration and we explored just about everything that came to mind in creating a world that we haven't seen before. I mean, in general too, like if we, you were creating a scene from 1800s Italy or so, you know, you, you could look that up, you could research what it looked like to create an authentic setting, to recreate an authentic setting. But because 2067 takes place in the near future, you know, so much happens within 10 years that the challenge there was to say, what what sort of believable reality can we present where it's authentic enough to be uh, true to the story, but also, you know, uh, there's that balance between what the audience will believe as well. Because if you put something too outlandish out there, you could lose an audience. Mm. It comes to all departments in on film, I find that, you know, that, that you've always got to find that balance, whether you're the cinematographer and how, how much movement or how much lighting you put or from a design, yes. design perspective, you've got to be, you know, can't just go too nuts or, or too minimal because then you might. So, yeah, there's always that fine balance. So it's good that you're yes. having that luxury of, you know, pre-production where you can spend a decent amount of time, I think, is the key to any production, really, is having a real good time to, real huge amount of time to actually um, 
you know really plot out the production and and so when you get to the shooting it's and and creating the sets and things you don't i guess you wouldn't have to uh, work too hard trying to figure problems out you know teething problems during the actual production yes that's absolutely right we want to nut out as much either fundamentally or detailed as as soon as possible so that when you have a crew of you know 40 people standing on set you don't want to be nutting out stuff while the, while the clock's ticking yeah and uh during your pre-production meetings you had your you mentioned that you had your cat animations did you have a few where you went you it looked good but you're but you couldn't really do it because it was it was too ambitious or you, where you man, managed to really hone it in by the time you you had that meeting Oh, no, um, you're, you're absolutely right on the, the first scenario where <laughs> you go, we, we have a vision and this is what we want to tell the story um, for set design um, as well as lighting and where the actors are placed, where the characters are within that space. For example, specifically, we had a lab set, which, by the way, goes through three different time periods, so that's another challenge Mm-hmm. layer as well but for example um we had a, a set shape which was like a series of arches and that was definitely you know we, we found out it was more like a wish list when we met with the construction manager because he said to you know to raise those arches in that amount of space we'd need to hire you know a, a certain crane and we need the floor space to actually build them. So it was the size of the set as well as the methodology of um, setting it up that was unachievable yeah. <laughs> for, for the time and money. So we, we paired it back and, uh, again, just trying to manage expectations as well as say, well, that's a good piece of information. Let's pair it back. Mm. Um still make it work without that overhead arch will still make it work um so yeah again it's more the it's it's still about collaboration with construction hello and who's Mm -hmm. building the sets and (laughs) their input about what's what's realistic sometimes it can it can lead to disappointment but at, at the same time i think um reality has to be accepted mm. and yeah it's you also have to look at what you don't want to know what you do want as well and mm. there's nothing wrong with having you know having a a huge set which you think will tell the story for whatever reasons you know there's nothing wrong with you know going for broke and saying this is what we think it should look like um uh, any information is good information. We just want to make sure it's it um, it meets the deadline. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. I think I think it's important to allow their creativity to, you know, be let loose, and then and then yes. then you work back from that. So because you yeah. nothing worse than when you you know you kind of held back, and then you get on set, and you're like, ah, yeah. oh, I came up oh, with this idea. It's too late. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly. And. And even if there's some, and quite often there's something as well in that big dream um, that can still be implemented as well. It doesn't have to be necessarily the size of the set. It can also be a finish that you wanted. It 
could be a, a metallic finish or it could be something that they can still do. But if you don't put it down in the first place, you're not going to get it anyway. Yeah, that's right. You you have these meetings and you figure this stuff out and you can really um, sometimes actually find something better. That's the other thing I've found, that you might have had this crazy idea and and then suddenly someone, you know, you have discussions and then suddenly you actually come up with a better idea, even though it's oh. a smaller, pro, you know, like you have less money to do it or whatever, but you actually yeah. come up with something better. So, yeah. I, I love those moments. Yeah. So in saying that, have did you have any interesting sort of outcomes um, during the production or even once you've seen the cut um, that you went, wow, that, that really worked out or that, that you really were surprised by? I'll give an, one example of... Um, an interesting outcome and it seems very very small but I'll mention it anyway because it it's it sticks out in my mind so we had in the script an eight-year-old boy and I was looking at ways to dress the uh, family apartment with something that would say an eight-year-old boy lives here Mm. so I went to uh, Big W and Kmart and took photos of children's toys while we were on location. I ran into a uh, an eight-year-old boy and I scrolled through those photos and said, would you like these toys or not? So we're going, oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, Rocket, it's cool. Oh, yeah, Lego, that's cool. Um, hand puppet, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, then I showed these to Seth. And as he was scrolling through, he saw um, a telescope and he went, oh, that'd be cool because in the story they are looking at the stars and we originally had that scene of them looking at the stars from a street and they were going to be outside and because there's no oxygen, they would have been wearing masks. So Seth said, oh, my gosh, let's put that telescope inside the apartment. And that meant that we didn't have to have that street location anymore, so we could cross that off the list. And secondly, if they're inside the apartment where the air is controlled, they wouldn't have to be wearing masks. Mm. So we could see their faces and it could be more intimate. So just having this photo of a kid's toy was able to uh, Im- improve the production for, for at least two reasons, a, a location mix and by being able to see the actors' faces. Mm. And by the sound of it, it sounds like it also allowed a little bit more based on the character by having a simple prop that then actually develops that character that, you know, the little boy's, I guess, character um, yes. in, in a way as well. So that's the interesting thing as well about that. So that's, mm-hmm. there you go. So that, that is a pretty cool kind of thing where you saved a lot of money and you've, you've allowed more, more creative expression for the, the character, the actor, sorry. Um, yes. So there you go. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, just Seth's way of thinking too, like he's very quick to run with ideas and what's available and yeah he spotted it straight away yeah wow 
And so I guess you don't know yet when the film's coming out? No, I don't know when the film will be released, uh, but uh, they've finished editing and post-production work. I believe it'll be this year, 2020. I very much look forward to, to seeing it. And from that project, was there something you, you, again, took away something from that? Oh, well, I took a lot away from it. Um, I think working with crew, so it's, if it's not about the production itself and the story, which is amazing, um, it's been in Seth's head for huh. 15 years, by the way, um, and so he's been draining it, sleeping it, eating it, uh, and uh, thought of just about nothing else for a long time. Uh, so, uh, but, but other things I've taken away from it is crew and people's uh, passion in filmmaking to, to get this job shot. And, and in the can, and I, I met uh, a lot of great locals there as well in Adelaide, and it's so, um, it's an eye-opener to see what their skills are and what they're willing to, to, um, to contribute to the project. Yeah, that was a big thing that I, I came away with. It's how their their skill and talent and their willingness to to work together to create this production. From my experience of working on smaller projects, is I think people f- seem to give. Um, they seem to be more. I don't know if you'd say giving, but like they really put as as much of their own creative skill into the project because I think everyone feels closer to to the to the whatever the story may be. And to each other as a as a production team, so uh, yeah, yes, yeah, I agree, I agree. And um, yeah, I'd say it's great to hear about twenty sixty seven, and look forward to seeing it. Um, I wanted to also ask about uh, jumping again. It's more science fictiony. You did actually work on Nightflies for two episodes, which um, that was a fantastic show. I, I really liked it. So, uh, what was oh. what was that like? Great, great. Oh, I that production came to me out of absolutely nowhere. Wow. The supervising art director David Ingram, who I'd heard of for years, uh, uh, sent me an email. Uh, I'm in Ireland, and uh, are you available? And at the time, I wasn't available for another month, and I had to stay in Sydney as well for other work commitments, but. Um, I love traveling and I love working. Um, I love using my passport and I, I, I love seeing how other crews work in other countries. And I hadn't worked with David before, so I was very glad at that opportunity. So uh, I, I went to Ireland and, well, actually, to start off with, I continued working from Sydney. So we were Skyping and I was sending them. Uh, drawings from Sydney to to Ireland, uh, and I also tried to go in with their time zone as well, so that it increased our chances of being able to um, have a, a an interactive dialogue. 
so that was another work experience, mm. working in a different time zone while still in your own country. Uh, and then going to Ireland, the, the set of the Night Flyer, the Night Flyer is the spaceship mm. itself, uh, the set designs were, they were quite clean and... Uh, quite dark, though. Yeah, quite dark. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I suppose the architecture of it was um, sci-fi spaceship interiors. Uh, the production designer, David Sanderford, uh, was a very uh, a clever and uh, innovative production designer and uh, we worked on the bridge set, more corridors, but there was a good variety of sets within the, the night flyer. Did you, did you work on the captain's off, uh, bedroom, I yes, guess it was? The bridge. The bridge, yeah, the bedroom. bridge set. Yes, yes, that was the main set that I worked on. And also, by the way, that was the first time I had heard of a an LED screen outside the oh, main yes. windows where as the camera moves, the output of that screen is moving with where the camera is. It's hard to explain. Actually, actually the first time I came across that concept was on 2067 huh? when visual effects supervisor Mark Vandenbergen yep. uh, was exploring a technology from uh, a company, I think it's called Mod Studios, and yes, the, if you have a, an exterior scene like a cityscape in the computer already, uh, already designed, and it is connected to camera the physical camera which is shooting um then as the camera moves the scenery outside moves to match mm. what the camera sees yeah. so anyway that that was a system that they had on night flies and unfortunately i i wasn't there during that shoot either uh but that was a, a just another interesting piece of technology to create that entire picture to create, create that scene and what you see beyond in deep space beyond the windscreens mm. of the, the night flyer bridge yeah and i guess i did actually want to touch on a little bit about technology for from your perspective like i think uh the latest mandalorian tv series um star wars tv series the uses a lot of massive led screens and similar thing they match the camera moves and you know, if, if depending on if it's out of focus, how how much they um how much detail there is or not, and uh, from your perspective, like, do you think that's with your especially with your ability with CAD design that you might have to consider looking design you know being a production designer in a digital form? Oh, that's interesting. You mean purely digital without mm. any set builds? Hmm. Ah, uh, look, that day may come for me personally. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, Sky Captain, by the way, I think that was, that was, oh, I'm going to say 90% digital. Mm, yes. Uh, where you have actors 
standing on maybe a piece of pavement and that's about it. Oh, if the opportunity came up for me to, to work on a production like that, I certainly wouldn't turn it down. But I, I, haven't, um, I haven't been on a production like that yet, yeah. which is you know, so, full, so fully digital. It'd be hard because it depends on what the process you enjoy, I guess, because if you enjoy the process of um, designing and creating, then the outcome isn't really that different, whether that's going to be rendered in 3D or or physically built, or do you actually do enjoy the process of physical? Oh, yes, but uh, yes, I do enjoy the, the process of physical set builds and environments, but I suppose, yes, design is design, whether or not it's, um, going to be a, a digital background or extension, or if it's a set build, it's still design. It's still designing to serve the story and create an environment uh, for the story. Yeah, definitely. And going back to 2067, did you actually do any any external designs like that, or was that someone else's job? Oh, okay. Uh, Yes, we had some exterior scenes in 2067, which definitely required digital extension because there was no way we could build, you know, 400 metres in the distance, Mm. some cityscapes and, you know, other environments. So we, we did set builds with blue screen and we had reference of what would be beyond. So when the drawings went out for these set builds, they would be accompanied by the the reference material so that everyone had an idea of what what set we were in, what environment we were in. Uh, but in terms of physically, like being there to design what was beyond, it, it wasn't all done in the production time during pr- production. So when it was in post and it was put in the hands of visual effects and Seth, uh, yeah, there was a point of departure for me there. But, you know, during the production, we had a lot of reference material. So, yeah, so going to Nightflies, I mean, you obviously came out of the blue and you worked on episode one and I think might have been episode four working with a tv series how, how does that work for you like especially if you're kind of on and off on it rather than the entire series night flies as a tv series uh I was brought on for to, to uh, with its setup so like the pilot episode and setting up the ship. So working on a TV series as opposed to a, a film, I suppose the, the difference might be that I don't see all of the episodes shot. Mm. But essentially it's, 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 it's very similar. You're setting up scenery and environments that have to be lit and shot. And the content and the quality, I think, is... I'll say it's on par with features. You know, mm. there's been such a huge shift since HD mm. TV. You know, sorry, back in the day, I'll start by saying, you know, back in the day, I, I started on episodic television on a series called Time Tracks in 1994. Oh, yes, I did see some And of that, that was <laughs> back in the day, you know, it was four to three T 
TV radio, we had CRT televisions, and there was, I suppose, a, a, a difference between the arenas of feature films, which you saw on a massive screen, and television, which you saw on a smaller screen in the comfort of your own lounge room. But with this shift now, um, with Netflix and Amazon and Stan being shot on cameras that are, I think, the, the same as which are used in feature films, there's not as much difference as there used to be. Mm, definitely. And the con- yeah, and the content is, for all intents and purposes, from, from what I can see, just about on par with features. Well, I mean, it is because, like, especially with Nightflyers, um, I know it's based on a short s- story, and I actually happened to catch the, I think it might have been late 80s or early 90s version, which was mm. very, <laughs> very camp for today, but still the concept was there. But uh, especially comparative to that, it's like, wow, like not, the, the TV series and a lot of TV series now, they're not episodic. So essentially they are telling a long-form story. So in a, yes. in, in a way, you have to treat it like a film from that respect and rather than just kind of go week in and week out, you go on a different adventure, which is fine. Some some shows work really well that way, but but like especially with Night Flies, it was a very continuous story. So, you know, that's I think that's the, the big thing with TV series now is that it's, I, I think that's long gone, that, that kind of almost disrespectful people to be involved in a tv series that they used to be you know like actors would you know really snub 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 the the tv shows Mm. but now it's like there is no difference and it's a better output because you really get to enjoy each story and character yes yes and something that brought all of that to my attention was a few years ago i was at the gym and uh one of the people working out there, we, we got chatting and I told him um, I was in the film industry and he was saying that he preferred television, on-demand television, for several reasons. And one of them was because he preferred to see a story over six to 12 episodes than a story told in two hours. Mm. He preferred that, that format and... Um, I think also with these on-demand ways of showing films and series, it's it's very convenient and you can watch it when you want it. And, yeah, you can have your family of four watching for that, for, you know, a subscription price as opposed to, dare I say, going to the, the cinema where it, it's comparatively so expensive. You've got to trade off whether you want to see it on a, big screen with that experience in a theatre or if you want to see it at home for all those other reasons. Yeah, exactly. So it's uh, like it's, it's changing and it's great. Like I think for filmmakers like us, in a way, sometimes TV series is better, <laughs> to put it. Like I look forward to the day where I get to shoot a TV series because at the end of the day you make the film or the TV series and, and you don't have to... Not that you need to worry about it, but you, there is none of this, you know, box office, you know, oh, it's flop because it's, you know, it's flop because it, no one went to see it. And that, that kind of, you know, taints the uh, the film's uh, reputation that whether it's a good film or not. Well, with TV series, it's on Netflix, people watch it, 
and you know and you as a filmmaker can continue making things and not have to worry about whether your next job will come out of the success of that project um yes so there's definitely a a, a positive point of view as far as streaming especially tv series for filmmakers because you can tell a long story and and the creatives can be have that you know really delve into whatever they that they whatever role they play on the on the project yeah yeah D- definitely definitely it's a it's a a good format you know in another arena but you know we're all it's all about um uh capturing a story and sending it out there mm. being able to work in this you know it's it's quite a fortunate thing to be able to work in the film industry really and with that what what is the process that you love in in your production design or filmmaking altogether oh there are several things about the process that i i love one of the things that springs to mind i suppose is to create something new and not seen before you know, um we as humans are, are wired for novelty so we're we want to see something new. Uh, so by working on films and creating something for people to see, that's that's something that I love. Um, another part of the process that I like is collaborating with so many departments uh, to create this, this piece, this film or this TV series. It's... The art department collaborating with construction and scenics and lighting, the director, the DP, of course, and set dressing. I, I, I love that process because you've got all these people with their different skills all working towards the same goal. And actually, I, I like time-lapsing a lot of these set builds because you can really see everyone in one spot, creating this set or environment. And all those departments and crew members that I mentioned before, you can see them all working together on a set to make it just right and make it ready to shoot. Mm. And uh, one of the processes I love is seeing that process. And then I I end up editing these time-lapse videos so everyone can just see how much work has gone into it from every different department every different crew member so was that your work on alien covenant i did see a few time lapses from that one. Oh yes i, I did a time lapse for alien covenant um and i suppose firstly the the content of it like the sets were as you know they were just photogenic so mm. you could barely go wrong with making time lapse uh, movies of them and oh the other thing about a couple of those Alien Covenant sets, as well as the other occasional set that I've time-lapsed, is that if there's no lid on it, if it's an open set with just floors and walls and not too much ceiling, it's great to capture because then nothing blocks it off. On Alien Covenant, there was the Juggernaut Mm. or the Jockey's Chair set, which didn't have a lid on it and uh, was relatively easy to shoot by putting cameras in a gantry overhead so you could safely put something in the gantries. Um, And then, of course, the other set 
The other couple of sets on that film, which were good to shoot, was the terraforming bay of the Covenant ship and the Hall of Heads, mm. uh, also in Engineering's world because they were they had a large floor area and no overhead elements would obscure the, the cameras. It's sort of also the other thing I, I do, you know, appreciate, like you see the, the time lapses is that um, – a lot of times those sets then get demolished like you'll never see them again so it's kind of have a bit of a bit of a time bubble of capturing that that moment where the, how the set was started how it looked and then then it's gone forever oh. so a lot of times yeah. that happens on movies so yeah yeah totally you, you hit the nail on the head there peter it's preserving these moments and because they won't happen again <laughs> yeah once once they're struck and we don't get that chance again and also as crew members who like seeing our work we can also show our families what mm. we do and where we spend our long hours yeah and, and, and why <laughs> yeah and that actually brings me to a, a point if but as far as you know the, the long hours that you do on film shoots like you know and especially when we're somewhat passionate about it as well so we end up putting even extra hours in to make make the project complete, um, how did you know? How do you manage your lifestyle uh, as far as personal lifestyle with doing that? Mm. Yeah, managing lifestyle and our outside of work hours. It's different for everyone. Mm. For me personally, I, I'm I'm very lucky to have a very supportive wife who. Is, is there and doesn't get angry at the long hours I spend <laughs> yeah. at work um, because she is happy that I'm happy. Yeah. I'm, I'm so drawn to it that that's what I enjoy doing, so that's good. I suppose another personal thing is that I, I don't have mouths to feed. I don't have children or grandchildren. Mm. So um, I my time at home is not as important as other people who have families, uh, so that's another uh, another difference. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, difficult for those those people. Like even when I talked to Earl in the last season's podcast, you know, like he, he's got kids, and it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, it it is definitely it makes it um, a tougher choice. I'd say in a way, I could imagine that it'd be a tougher choice to to say, can I keep doing these kind of projects or. Or do yes. I take care of my family, you know? But, you know, you also yes. got to make the money too, so. <laughs> yes, all those uh, different complexities or, or um, things in life that, yeah, ha have to be done. It's, um, it is a balance, I suppose, and having that supportive spouse and family. And, yeah, the, 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 the balance. You know, yeah. You do have to work to, to pay for... Um, food and mortgages so yeah there's definitely that too that's one thing that's think as a filmmaker it sounds a bit weird like not weird but i guess when you look for a, a partner in your life you need someone that can <clears throat> understand that that uh requirement that patience because <laughs> yes. us filmmakers we get very obsessive with the work so it's sometimes very hard to let go of the of the uh, process you know that you when you're in, especially when you're in the middle of it so you do need a very patient partner in life i think yes yeah it's definitely 
a plus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how else one would would um, be able to keep doing what what they do. Um, it is a passion, and I don't know if I speak for everyone, but I, I think that you know it's that personality type we mm. we are drawn to that work and we enjoy it, and we wouldn't be doing anything else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's and and the the other thing too is that with um, my wife and her patients with it, um, she said, you know, when I met you, that's what you were doing. So just just because you partner up with someone, you, you know, you can make changes, but that's something that shouldn't change drastically. No one should change that in you mm. if that's what you enjoy doing. Yeah, that's right. That that would be a that would be another very good relationship if that's what. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. No one would be no one would be happy. Yeah, that's right. And with uh, as far as uh, what project you're working next on, or what, or maybe actually, rather than saying that, maybe what what is there anything you'd love to work on, or is there a story that you've you've read or or um, you know seen even or even music like something that inspires you that something you'd love to production design is there something like that wow i <laughs> i've never been asked that question that i i i uh i haven't really thought about it. i've usually just been offered things and um accepted i suppose pr- production design and story coupled together i suppose it would be something of social comment that would be close to my heart and having a having to design something that's um interesting and creative to tell that story gosh what that mm. is i don't know <laughs> yeah sometimes it comes to you but you got sometimes you got to put it out there you know like put it out mm. to the universe that that's maybe something you're looking for but yeah i mean yeah. That, that's it it's 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 a it's a difficult question what you know like i'm as a DP, I'm like, oh, I'd love to shoot this and that, but really, what is that I'm really after? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I suppose to, a couple of things spring to mind, and uh, like I, I've seen, um, is it the, the Grand Budapest Hotel? Oh, yes. And uh, the, the designer, Adam Stoppen, Stockhausen, I was thinking, oh, I, could, I should like to write to him and see what his next project is because of, you know, the brilliance of that production design. Um, mm. And then I saw Jojo Rabbit. Oh yes, as well. Have you seen Jojo yes, Rabbit? Yes, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. Very good film. Yeah, yeah. I, I lo- loved the design in that, the, the color palette in mm. that, as well as the, the messages that it was telling. Um, yeah, and there was actually a lot through through props and and design in the film. Actually, I, I found. So. Yes. Yes, the um, and the, the graphics and yeah, all of the the sets there. Um, I, I I was quite immersed in in that uh, film. So yeah, I suppose I would like to design something with a certain look, a stylized look, which is still believable uh, with an. A very interesting palette, mm. and with uh, which supports a good story. You know, all, we all have dreams, so that's definitely uh, important to to 
trying to have a little bit of a goal where you'd like to go. Um, yes, yes, yeah. Going to that, is there a favourite film of yours that you just love from whatever reasons? I don't, I don't have a favourite film, actually. I, I suppose. What comes to mind, I always say. Funnily enough, I, I surprise myself sometimes with these sorts of answers, but let's be honest, um, I, I do enjoy the Disney Pixar animations. Yeah. <laughs> and I very much enjoyed The Incredibles. Oh, yes. I, for its design and story and characters, comedic value, mm. uh, I, I would watch that over and over again. Um, yeah. I suppose that there's a classic too, of course, The Sound of Music. Oh, yes. <laughs> the musical, oh, gosh, it, it has everything. Uh, mm. Amazing um, design and story and characters. Yeah, oh, well, that sound of music. It's interesting that film because it does encapsulate a lot of different things. Like even though it's, I guess you'd say it's a musical, but also from a story perspective, there's a lot of dark and light moments in it as well. There's a mm. great contrast in that. But yeah, even the Incredibles. I, I actually remember seeing that at the cinemas when the first one when that came out, and it really captured a beautiful essence of family and and all the other little quirky things of you know like superheroisms you know um, yes so it's very yeah that's a great little film too and, and that's the thing like animations are like i mean for me it's uh i love a lot of japanese anime works <laughs> as well um yes. because they you know they have they're very inspiring and they and even from production designer or cinematographer's point of view they pretty much exactly create what they wanted to create so you kind of get to see the final result pretty much of what someone's crazy imagination is yes yeah yeah it's, it's okay as part of you know filmmaking whether it be animation or live action or a combination how it looks and the story it's telling are, are key to um what it's what it's conveying yeah definitely and it's a great note mm -hmm. to end on so Thanks very much for being on the podcast and sharing all the wonderful little stories and experiences and uh, look oh. forward to seeing your work in the future works. Oh, great. Thanks. It was my pleasure to chat with you, Peter, and thank you for creating this series so that we can all um, share our information and experiences and um, uh, enhance the collaborative process. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode with uh, Jacinta Long. Next week, uh, I have David Russell, who's a storyboard artist who's worked on such films as Return of the Jedi, Terminator 2, and some of the biggest blockbusters. And he resides in uh, Brisbane, in Australia. And, uh, yeah, he's got wonderful things to share about visualizing stories. So look out for it in a week's time.